This episode features descriptions of substance abuse that some might find disturbing. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. On a rainy October evening in 1849, a young newspaperman discovered Edgar Allan Poe. The celebrated poet and fiction writer lay semi-conscious outside a tavern in Baltimore. He was delirious and incomprehensible. Poe had been missing for days, and he wore someone else's shabby clothes. A nearby hospital admitted him for, quote, lethargy and confusion. But the 40-year-old writer never regained his senses enough to account for his whereabouts or the strange circumstances in which he'd been found. Four days later, he died. Poe had authored some of the 19th century's most acclaimed works of American literature, like The Raven and The Telltale Heart. Many of his fantastical stories involve supernatural presences and grisly murders. The author blurred the lines between fact and fiction in his stories, and even in his own life. Poe's mysterious demise seemed like something out of his wretched tales. 170-some years later, the exact cause remains a mystery. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. Many historians believe he died due to complications from alcohol abuse but his last days on Earth are shrouded in mystery, which leaves plenty of room for conspiracies. This episode will focus on the official story of Poe's delirious final days. We'll point out where eyewitnesses disagree about facts. We'll expose personal bias masquerading as truth. And we'll reveal the lies of people who attempted to profit from Poe's personal tragedy. Next time, we'll explore three conspiracy theories that try to make sense of Poe's whereabouts and adult state. First, that Poe was the victim of a beating in Baltimore. Second, that he was murdered by people in his innermost circle. And third, he fell prey to a bygone form of electoral fraud known as a cooping scheme. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. 
With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. You have to have a taste for the dramatic to appreciate Edgar Allan Poe's haunted fiction and poetry. In his writings, orangutans commit murder, romances continue beyond the grave, and houses are so full of ghosts that they're practically alive. The author came by his flair for the theatrical honestly. His parents, Eliza and David Poe, were stage actors, but they struggled to earn a living, and the family moved often to follow their work. Eliza gave birth to her two sons in Boston, First, in 1807, came Henry. Then, on January 19th, 1809, Edgar Poe entered the world. But by the time Edgar's sister, Rosalie, was born at the end of 1810, their parents had separated. Edgar's mother, Eliza, became ill that December. She died, presumably, from tuberculosis. Days later, his father David passed away from an unrelated illness. The three Poe siblings went to live with separate families. Edgar was taken in by a wealthy, childless couple, John and Francis Allen of Richmond, Virginia, who baptized him as Edgar Allen Poe in January 1812. Poe called the Allens Ma and Pa, though they never formally adopted him. His bond with Francis was a mutually loving one, but his relationship with his godfather, John, was tumultuous. This may be because, even as a child, Poe's emotions were turbulent. His passionate nature could either send people running or draw them close. 
It certainly attracted the attention of his neighbor, Sarah Elmira Royster, who went mainly by Elmira. The two became childhood sweethearts. As young adults, they got engaged before Poe left for the University of Virginia. In college, Poe distinguished himself as a spellbinding orator, a clever student, and an innovative writer. His dark, wide-set eyes flashed when he spoke, but he only lasted one term. By some accounts, Poe was expelled for unbecoming behavior, namely excessive drinking and gambling. In reality, Poe did gamble, but not because he was especially debaucherous or delinquent. Rather, his wealthy godfather had sent him to school without adequate financial support. Gambling was a desperate, if ill-conceived, attempt to pay his bills. In any case, Poe went back to Richmond, where he discovered that, in his absence, Elmira had accepted a marriage proposal from another man. Her family had persuaded her to partner with a rich businessman. They didn't consider Poe a suitable match due to his low birth and uncertain financial future. Poe's access to his godfather's wealth was extremely tentative. Poe was despondent, and ultimately, his godfather refused to pay off his gambling debts. Outraged, the 18-year-old moved in with some relatives in Baltimore. There, he enlisted in the U.S. Army in May of 1827, using the name Edgar Perry. That same year, Poe's first book of verse, Tamerlane and Other Poems, debuted in Boston without attribution. It sold fewer than 50 copies. Meanwhile, Poe marched along with his army regiment, but tragedy soon caught up with him. His beloved godmother, Frances, died suddenly in February of 1829. The army granted him leave to attend the funeral, but by the time Poe arrived in Richmond, his dear ma was already buried. A few months later, John Allen remarried. His 30-year-old wife, Louisa, was just nine years older than her new godson, Poe. From the get-go, they competed for John's attention and fortune. John sided with his new wife, and eventually the pair had children. Now that John had a so-called legitimate heir, he wrote Poe out of his will. For the next few years, Poe eked out a meager living in Baltimore, writing for magazines and newspapers. Then, at age 23, he entered a short story contest sponsored by a local paper. His distinctive handwriting, an immaculate cursive, caught the attention of a judge who then marveled at the writer's prose. Poe won the prize of $50, about $1,500 in today's money. The judge, intrigued by the young, unknown talent, went to visit Poe at his home. He found him living in squalor, gaunt as a skeleton, and wearing tattered clothes. But Poe carried himself with the manners of a gentleman. The judge bought Poe a new suit and introduced him to members of literary society. This was the big break Poe needed. Things started to look up for the struggling writer. His newfound connections landed him a job as the editor of a literary magazine in Richmond. With this relative financial security, Poe felt it was time to settle down. And on May 16, 1836, he married Virginia Clem. 
his first cousin. At the time, marriage between first cousins was legal, so their bloodline didn't raise eyebrows. What did rustle some petticoats was their age difference. Edgar was 27. On the marriage certificate, Virginia listed her age as 21. In reality, she was only 13 years old. To make this more weird, Poe referred to Virginia as sis. Some biographers believe this is because they had more of a sibling relationship. It's even suggested that Virginia died a virgin. But others point out that Poe wrote passionate letters to his wife. In any case, the newly married Poe's career picked up steam in the early 1840s. In this decade, he published some of his most critically acclaimed compositions. Poe's short story, Murders in the Rue Morgue, is widely considered to be the first modern detective story. He developed a fan base and prestige, and universities invited him to give lectures. Even Charles Dickens made a point to meet Poe when he was in Philadelphia on an American tour. But Poe's fame didn't come with fortune. The New York Evening Mirror only paid him $9 for the first printing of his smash-hit poem, The Raven, in 1845. That would be about $250 today. So he continued to work day jobs in publishing. Poe held a series of respectable but low-paying positions in quick succession, chasing work from city to city, from Richmond to Philadelphia to New York. According to many sources, he drank heavily during those years. And throughout his life, he cycled through periods of strict abstinence, followed by episodes of abuse and out-of-control behavior. A friend once wrote that one single glass of champagne would leave Poe neither sane nor responsible. On rare occasions, Poe drank alcohol mixed with laudanum, a bitter opium tincture. Opium made appearances in many of his works of fiction, and Poe often wrote in first person, causing many readers to assume he was describing himself. But despite widespread rumors, Poe was not a known opium addict. In any case, Poe's drinking followed him to New York in the spring of 1846. He brought with him his wife, Virginia, and her mother, his aunt, Maria Clem. They settled in a cottage in what is now the Bronx. That was the final chapter for Virginia, who had been battling tuberculosis for a few years. She died in January 1847 at the age of 24, leaving her 38-year-old husband widowed and childless. Poe's grief over her death only exacerbated his already mercurial emotions. For the next few years, his writing received mixed reviews. One of his contemporaries remarked that he'd grown too impulsive and erratic. With his writing at a crossroads, Poe looked for other ways to earn a living. He'd long dreamed of establishing a literary magazine of his own and decided to embark on a speaking tour to raise startup capital. So, in the summer of 1849, Poe bid a tearful farewell to his mother-in-law and set off across the southern states. But he couldn't outrun his demons. Coming up... 
will follow Poe on an adventure that almost cost him his freedom and his life. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1849, 40-year-old Edgar Allan Poe embarked on a speaking tour through the southern United States. He hoped to raise funds for his own literary magazine. On leaving New York, Poe boarded a southbound steamship, but he didn't go straight to Richmond as planned. Instead, when the steamer made a stop in Philadelphia, Poe walked off the boat and into a tavern. He drank so heavily that he lost track of his belongings, specifically his traveling trunk, which contained the speech he'd written for his first speaking engagement, his financial lifeline. Later, he was arrested for disorderly behavior and thrown into Philadelphia's Moyamensing prison. There, his body went into alcohol withdrawal he experienced horrific visions and physical pain. Historians can't make a definitive diagnosis, but Poe's symptoms were consistent with delirium treatments. That's a particularly severe condition that can occur when a chronic drinker suddenly goes cold turkey. Poe took his hallucinations to be punishment for his alcoholic tendencies. In a letter to a friend, he described one vision where he was plunged up to his lips into a vat of boiling booze. After a few days, his delusion subsided and the pain abated. A jailer trotted Poe out in front of the mayor for punishment, along with others who'd been arrested for drunken behavior. Someone in the group recognized him as a poet and a respectable gentleman, and the mayor released him with no fines. Shaken, Poe headed straight back to New York, 
but his hallucination-induced paranoia quickly got the better of him. He became convinced that his fellow train passengers were plotting to kill him and return to Philadelphia. He showed up unannounced at a friend's house, pleading for help with shaving off his signature mustache. He thought it would help disguise him from his imaginary death squad. The friend fed and soothed Poe for several days. His nerves calmed down, and he located his lost suitcase in storage at the railway station, minus the lecture, which had gone missing. Poe decided to press on to Richmond, two weeks behind schedule. By then, his clothes were tattered, he'd lost a shoe, and he had to beg acquaintances for passenger fare. Now, there is an alternative theory for Poe's delayed arrival in Richmond. In several letters, Poe claimed to have come down with cholera. To his aunt and mother-in-law, Maria Clem, he wrote, I have been so ill, have had the cholera or spasms quite as bad, and can now barely hold the pen. And shortly after arriving in Richmond, Poe told his business partner, I left New York on my way to this place, but was arrested in Philadelphia by the cholera, from which I barely escaped with life. A cholera epidemic did tear through Philadelphia that summer, but it's highly unlikely that Poe ever had it. Instead, he was probably using the disease outbreak to cover up the more embarrassing truth. He was arrested, not by cholera, but by the police. Whatever the cause, Poe finally arrived in Richmond. There, he had to recreate the lost speech from memory, but he pulled it off, and the tour was a resounding success. Poe was a spellbinding public speaker, and he had a way of charming audiences, especially the ladies. He had his eye on one lady in particular, Elmira Royster Shelton, his childhood sweetheart. By the time of Poe's visit, she was a widow with two children. Poe was keen to rekindle a romance with the muse of his youth, whose beauty and heartbreak had inspired many of his early poems. At first, Elmira wasn't interested, but Poe won her over. By late August, they were engaged. Poe bought a wedding ring for Elmira and shopped for a dress coat for himself. He was a bit of a dandy when it came to his appearance. Around that time, Poe also joined a temperance league and pledged to abstain completely from alcohol. By most accounts, the fall of 1849 marked an exceptionally happy period in Poe's life. Things were finally coming together for him after decades of hardship and heartbreak. He'd cemented his status as an internationally celebrated author, and his Southern lecture circuit had been an unqualified success. He'd marry his childhood sweetheart at last, and he surrounded himself with friends who enjoyed being in the orbit of such a renowned celebrity. Poe wrapped up his tour and planned a quick trip to New York in September. There, he would pack up his belongings and move them down to Richmond, and he hoped to persuade his mother-in-law, Maria Clem, to come with him. On the way to New York, Poe planned to make a brief stop in Philadelphia. He'd been offered the hefty sum of $100 to edit a short poetry collection. Then he'd continue to New York, 
return to Richmond, and start a new life with Elmira. Sadly, that wasn't in the cards. By some accounts, in the weeks leading up to his trip, Poe was unable to keep his vow of temperance, especially during social visits with would-be patrons and subscribers to his literary magazine. We don't know how extensive these lapses were, whether it was just a glass of sherry here and there or full-on drinking sprees. But given what we know about Poe's extremely low tolerance, the difference was razor thin. Poe paid one of his last social calls in Richmond to the Talley family. Susan Archer Talley, an 18-year-old aspiring poet, was a friend of Poe's sister, Rosalie. She'd somewhat giddily taken on the role of Poe's protege. Talley described Poe as being full of optimism. She wrote in a letter that on no occasion had I seen him so cheerful and hopeful as that evening. But Poe could have been putting on a show for the young writer who clearly idolized him. It's possible that his outlook on life wasn't as carefree as he let on. It's also possible that he was ailing physically, but didn't want to trouble his hosts with any private medical concerns. Medical concerns like the ones he mentioned to Elmira the next evening. On the eve of his departure, Poe visited his fiancée to bid her farewell. He complained of feeling feverish and quite sick, and by Elmira's account, he was very sad that night. She hoped he would delay his journey until he regained health. But Poe pressed on. The two would meet again, never more. At about half past nine in the evening, Poe stopped by the office of his friend, Dr. John Carter. They conversed and perused the newspaper, and upon leaving, Poe absentmindedly took Dr. Carter's Malacca wood cane instead of his own silver-handled walking stick. Some conspiracy theorists point to the switching of the canes as a crucial clue for their pet theories. And we'll get to that next time in part two. In any case, Poe went down the street to have dinner at a popular neighborhood restaurant, Sadler's. He arrived around 10 o'clock. The owner was pleased to have such a famous patron and sat at Poe's table. Other friends and acquaintances came by to pay respects. Then, around midnight, several patrons left with Poe to see him off on his journey. He boarded his northbound steamship in time for an early morning departure. Members of the farewell party later described the scene to biographer Susan Archer Weiss, the very same young poet, now married, whom Poe had befriended in Richmond. They said that Poe was, quote, quite sober and cheerful to the last. However, in Dr. Carter's 1902 account of the evening, he said that Poe must have left his office and gotten drunk at the restaurant. A sober man would surely have noticed his mistake about the canes, and Poe had plenty of time to correct his error before heading to the docks. Whatever his state, Poe left Richmond in the morning hours of September 27, 1849. He changed boats in Norfolk at three in the afternoon and arrived in Baltimore, Maryland on the morning of September 28th. Baltimore was a scheduled stop on the steamship's route. 
Perhaps Poe had a good reason to disembark before continuing to Philadelphia for his editing job, but he left no record of what it might have been. Hundreds of historians and biographers have poured over the next few days of Poe's life, but to little avail. The vast majority of Poe's whereabouts are still unaccounted for. We know he didn't stay with family. His Baltimore-based cousin, Nielsen Poe, wrote in a letter to Maria Clem that where he spent the time he was here or under what circumstances I have been unable to ascertain. And we think that Poe probably tried to call on writer Nathan Covington Brooks, but Brooks was out of town at the time. It has been widely speculated that Poe was on a drinking spree, meaning his trip north was similar to his debaucherous episode on his trip south, but we'll never know for sure. And you'd think that eyewitnesses in Baltimore would have stepped forward one way or another to account for Poe's whereabouts, but no drinking buddies or bartenders materialized. Somehow, Poe, a fairly public figure with many friends and acquaintances in town, managed to hide in plain sight. Coming up, Poe's final delirious days. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now, back to the story. Edgar Allan Poe's life was finally coming together in the fall of 1849. The 40-year-old left Richmond, Virginia for a quick trip to New York. Upon his return, he planned to marry his childhood sweetheart and muse. But somehow... His plans got derailed. For several days, his whereabouts were, and still are, a mystery. The official story picks up again on October 3rd, 1849, 10 days after his initial departure. That's when Joseph Walker, a Baltimore Sun employee, came across the author outside a pub in the rain. Poe was delirious, incoherent, and scarcely able to move. It's also been stated that he was lying in a gutter when Walker found him, but there's nothing to substantiate this detail. His face was haggard and bloated. Walker asked him if there was anyone in town he could call upon for help, and Poe named Dr. Joseph Snodgrass, a local slavery abolitionist and magazine editor. The two had known one another since Poe had lived in Baltimore a decade earlier. Their association had ended when Snodgrass launched a magazine of his own, supposedly making Poe bitter and envious. 
The fact that Poe was willing to bury a decade-old hatchet underscores how desperately he needed help that evening. Walker scribbled a quick letter to Snodgrass. He wrote, There is a gentleman, rather the worse for wear, who appears in great distress. He is in need of immediate assistance. Snodgrass received the letter and rushed to the pub. And in his description, Poe, normally a fastidious dresser and particular about his appearance, was a wreck. He noted that Poe's unkempt hair peeked out from under a strange, tattered palm leaf hat, and his face was haggard and unwashed. As for Poe's clothes, Snodgrass described, quote, a faded and soiled sack coat, ripped at several of its seams, pants half-worn and badly fitting. He wore neither vest nor neckcloth. On his feet were boots of coarse material and giving no sign of having been blacked for a long time, if at all. Snodgrass guessed that Poe had sold his good clothes and purchased a far lesser set for some reason, perhaps to pay a bar tab. His other conjecture was that Poe had been robbed of his clothing altogether. He also observed that Poe's normally bright, soulful eyes looked vacant. Some conspiracy theorists used this as evidence that Poe had been drugged or was the victim of a head injury. To be fair, the part about Poe's vacant eyes was probably a bit of editorializing on Snodgrass's part. He vocally opposed the consumption of alcohol, which may have led to a snap judgment about what was wrong with Poe. We don't know why Snodgrass assumed Poe was drunk rather than injured or ill. A second eyewitness account substantiated the rest of Snodgrass's testimony. This was Dr. John J. Moran. He served as the attending physician at Washington University Hospital, where Walker and Snodgrass took Poe after they discovered him outside the tavern. To be fair, Moran's credibility would eventually come into question. In retirement, he made a buck off Edgar Allan Poe's demise, lecturing on it nationwide and publishing a book about his experience. The details of Moran's narrative grew more embellished over time, and he frequently contradicted his earlier statements, which were likely the most credible. Unfortunately, those early statements are disappointingly vague. Moran's notes state that Poe was admitted for lethargy and confusion, which could mean practically anything. There's also no detailed medical chart with a description of Poe's symptoms, making it impossible to know what injuries Poe might have sustained in the hours or days he was missing. It also makes it difficult to know if he received appropriate care beyond bed rest. But we do know that Washington University Hospital had a less than stellar reputation. Its success rate for operations was so low that many patients chose to die from their illness rather than risk surgery. And that's not even the worst of it. Many locals believed that the hospital removed corpses from graves for various purposes, like dissection. Regardless of the hospital's reputation, Poe had no choice in the matter. It took him 10 hours to regain consciousness after being admitted. Meanwhile, 
his caretakers waffled about what diagnosis to give him. Initially, staff placed Poe in a section of the hospital reserved for the heavily intoxicated. But upon examination, Dr. Moran concluded that Poe wasn't the slightest bit drunk. However, his descriptions of Poe's recovery sound a lot like the alcohol withdrawal Poe went through in Philadelphia. For two days, Poe had tremors. He hallucinated and he chattered nonstop. His pronounced forehead grew pale and sweaty. During one period of relative lucidity, the doctor even offered him alcohol and an opiate for his pain, but Poe notably refused. The author never regained his senses enough to explain his disappearance or give an accounting of the events that led to his hospitalization. Moran claims he attempted to get answers out of him, but the doctor couldn't decipher any meaning from Poe's delirious utterances. Then, on October 6th, Poe's cousin Nielsen attempted to visit him, but Dr. Moran turned him away. He said Poe was too, quote, excitable for visitors. It's unclear exactly what that would translate to in today's medical language, but mania and delirium tremens have been floated as possibilities. Later that night, Dr. Moran claims he heard Poe cry out repeatedly for someone named Reynolds. Many have tried to identify Reynolds, but to this day, no solid theories have emerged. It's a secret Poe took to his grave. Sometime before 5 a.m. on October 7, 1849, 40-year-old Edgar Allan Poe died. In his memoir, Moran gave Poe's last words as, He who arched the heavens and upholds the universe has his decrees legibly written upon the frontlet of every human being and upon demons incarnate. Except that's probably one of Moran's many contradictory embellishments. He had written in an earlier letter that Poe's last words were, Lord, help my poor soul which seems a more likely utterance from a man who'd been incomprehensible for the previous few days. Poe did not receive an autopsy, and as death certificates weren't required at the time, there is no document giving an official cause of death. Moran's letter to Poe's aunt, Maria Clem, was characteristically vague. He wrote, You are already aware of the malady of which Mr. Poe died. If the malady was chronic alcohol abuse, then Moran's delicate language might have been a courteous attempt at discretion. But Moran always maintained that Poe had not been drinking on the night he was brought to the hospital. So if that's the case, he either changed his mind and did think alcohol abuse was to blame, or he deliberately lied about it. In any case, the only conclusive account of Poe's cause of death was in the Baltimore Clipper. The newspaper said he lost his life to congestion of the brain. That's an imprecise description of symptoms, not a diagnosis. Swelling of the brain can result from liver failure, which would point to death by chronic alcohol abuse. But it can also signify many other unrelated medical ailments, diseases, or injuries. Plus, 
we don't know the paper's source. It could have been an unscrupulous journalist making an assumption. The lack of definitive documentation leaves the door open to any number of theories. Though, by the same token, it makes them all difficult to substantiate. One wonders what Auguste Dupin, the detective from Poe's stories, would make of the evidence, or lack thereof. The trail went cold when a cryptkeeper placed Poe's body into a cheap pine coffin. He was buried in his grandfather's plot at the Westminster Burying Ground in Baltimore, in an unmarked grave. An obituary, widely circulated in national newspapers, stated that no mourners gathered to remember him. This was an exaggeration, but not by much. Only a handful of relatives, colleagues, and friends were on hand for Poe's funeral. His bride-to-be, Elmira Royster Shelton, was suspiciously not among them. A reverend in the Methodist Episcopal Church, who happened to be the cousin of Poe's dearly departed wife, Virginia, conducted a three-minute-long service. And with that, the great Edgar Allan Poe was lowered into his sorry grave. It was a wretched end, akin to the miserable deaths Poe had penned for the tragic figures in his gothic tales. And, like his fictional creations, Poe's final days remain shrouded in mystery. Next time, we'll examine the unanswered questions surrounding Poe's death. We'll focus on the three leading conspiracy theories that take over where the official story falls short. Conspiracy theory number one. Poe was mugged, perhaps after flashing the money he'd earned on his lecture tour in front of the wrong crowd. His confusion and tattered clothing suggest that his attackers stole his belongings and dealt a fatal blow. Conspiracy theory number two. Poe was murdered once upon a midnight dreary by his fiancé's brothers. They opposed his upcoming marriage to Elmira, and some say they were willing to do anything to prevent it. And conspiracy theory number three. Poe may have been ensnared in an antiquated form of voter fraud known as a cooping scheme. Political parties rounded up vagrants and forced them to vote multiple times or else. Of course, it's possible that Poe simply died of complications related to chronic alcohol abuse. But we owe it to the inventor of detective stories to examine every clue and try to solve the mystery. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday to unpack the mystery surrounding Edgar Allan Poe's death. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Emily Vaughn, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hey, listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>